Good morning. Covenant College. I always like these special chapels because it gives us an opportunity to see sort of the, the real covenant, the essence of covenant, not the posers that will fill in the extra seats this time tomorrow, right? Right, like you and me, Kelly. So it's good to have you uh, on this, uh, especially on this uh, Thursday, a special uh, day of chapel. Um, let me pray as we begin. We thank you, dear God, for gathering us here uh, on this day to uh, reflect on important ideas and uh, features uh, of our past as Christians and to uh, strive together to uh, discern what it means to walk faithfully with you. So bless our time here together. Bless our speaker. Thank you for her work and for the ways in which she is uh, prepared and been prepared to uh, challenge us uh, this morning and for the next several days. So bless our time together and we commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, our college, as most of you know, is an agency of the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, another PCA agency known as Women's Ministries in the Church, uh, according to its statement, seeks to equip, connect, and encourage women in the church to know Christ personally and be committed to extending his kingdom in her life, home, church, community, and throughout the world. It seeks to glorify God and serve his kingdom by teaching sound doctrine that trains and disciples women to know and apply God's word to all of life. Uh, many years ago, this agency, then known as Women in the Church, or WIC, collected funds from people from all over the country in order to graciously endow an annual lectureship here at Covenant that's been charged with the task of building up the church and bolstering an informed lay leadership among both men and women. The lectureship has covered many different topics through the years, but always it seeks to bring the best of Christian academic thinking to bear on public issues that are of concern uh, to, to all of us. Uh, the lectures this year explore uh, a topic that our speaker this morning has argued that many of us find, have, many of us find easy to, or to, to trivialize. Uh, that is sin, particularly the seven deadly sins. Uh, she will help us understand both their rootedness in ancient philosophers like Aristotle and medieval thinkers like Thomas Aquinas, while also helping us understand their place in contemporary Christian discipleship. The title of this year's lectures is Glittering Vices, Discipleship and Disordered Loves. Uh, I know no one better equipped to tackle this topic than this year's lecturer, Dr. Rebecca DeYoung. She's professor of philosophy at Calvin College. Professor DeYoung earned her bachelor's degree at Calvin and her PhD at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, she has written widely on Aquinas' ethics, including published articles and book chapters on various vices and virtues, such as sloth, gluttony, hope, and despair. Among other titles, she is author of Glittering Vices, A New Look at the Seven Deadly Sins, and Vainglory, the Forgotten Vice, 
She and her husband, Scott, have four children and live in Grand Rapids. In addition to these public lectures, which will be today and tomorrow in chapel, uh, the WIC lectures include a one-credit-hour course for in-depth coverage of the topic. And the course will meet this evening, uh, tomorrow evening, and Saturday morning in Brock 118. And even, I know some of you are registered, even if you're not, you're welcome to come and participate in as much uh, as you're able. So please join me in welcoming this year's WIC lecturer, Rebecca DeYoung. Thank you for that warm welcome. It's such a pleasure to be with you and even more a pleasure to worship with you this morning. Um, my talk this morning will pick up on the theme of the WIC lectures in general, um, discipleship and disordered love. And I'd like to begin with, a, um, hang on. I'd like to begin by getting my clicker to work. Excellent, there we go. I'd like to begin with a passage from the Gospel of John, John 15, and I'll be reading some excerpts uh, from verses one through eight. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today I want to graft some reflections on this passage, together with my research on the seven deadly sins and spiritual formation. So I want to start with a picture of the seven deadly sins from the British Library website, because this picture depicts these sins with the same kind of metaphor that we're fi we find in John 15, uh, the metaphor of a vine and growth. Now, most of us don't know that the seven deadly sins were originally actually not known as the deadly sins. They were rather known as the capital vices. And as a matter of fact, it turns out there weren't originally seven of them either. There were eight or nine. So here's a, a list. And you can see that there are sometimes eight, sometimes nine. It depends on who's counting. The originators of this list of sins were a group of solitary monks living in the deserts of Egypt. Why the desert? Their vocation was to pattern their lives after the life of Jesus Christ, to walk in his footsteps, as it were. So the first thing that they did on this journey is go uh, into the wilderness, as he went into the wilderness after his baptism. Um, and this was a move toward facing temptations from Satan in order to then be ready for ministry and mission and more greater communion with God. So the first of these thinkers, Evagrius of Pontus, set their practices down in writing, and his disciple, John Cassian, 
reformulated them in uh, a book called The Institutes of the Monastic Life. And this was sort of a manual for monastic life through the Middle Ages along with St. Benedict's rule. So these desert Christians put resisting the devil, resisting temptation into practice. Uh, and in fact, over time, they identified eight main areas of temptation, which they called eight evil thoughts. Cassian ordered them from physical uh, temptations to spiritual temptations. Gregory the Great, a few centuries later, uh, reordered the list the other direction um, and made it into a system of sevens and took pride off and put it at the root. So there's a whole story of how the, lift ha the list has changed over time, which I won't get into here. But although this list of vices um, became a canonical list of seven in the Middle Ages, the earliest efforts here by the Desert Fathers, by Evagrius and Cassian and others, it was a much messier business. Um, it was not so much an exercise in writing a clear and systematic catechism about sin as, as instead an effort to give a kind of wise diagnostic guidance manual um, for spiritual direction and soul care circa 4th century AD. So imagine that you've done Christian counseling um, for 20 or 30 years and you wrote down a summary of the main issues you saw people struggling with over time. And then you also thought about the best strategies um, that worked um, in terms of recommending um, how to diagnose such struggles and then provide steps toward healing. That, that's sort of the idea behind what Cassian and Evagrius were up to. So Cassian puts it this way. Um, he describes the soul care being done by spiritual directors as a kind of imitation of Christ as the great physician. So these spiritual directors were physicians of souls under the direction of Christ the healer. So he says, as in the case with the most skilled physician who not only heals present ills, but also confronts future ones with shrewd expertise and forestalls them with prescriptions, so also these spiritual directors, these physicians of souls, destroy, as with some heavenly medicine, these maladies or temptations of the heart, just as they're about to emerge, not allowing them to grow in the minds of the young, but disclosing to them both the causes of the passions that threaten them and the means of acquiring health. And just to give you a kind of a sense of what this might look like, here's a metaphor or an analogy. Um, just a few years ago, um, I had a doctor's appointment um, and received the worst diagnosis of my entire life. And it was um, one of the worst and hardest moments that I've had to go through. And yet, the same doctor who gave me that absolutely devastating diagnosis was also, as it turned out, the surgeon who healed me. And so the picture you get from Cassian isn't sort of a kind of cheap therapeutic metaphor. It's rather, you're dying. Um, and if you don't get healing from the great physician, you're going to end up in self-destruction. And so hear the diagnosis and receive it as the first step in a path toward treatment that will lead to spiritual wholeness and healing. What does it mean to call this list capital vices? Why do I prefer that name to the deadly sins? It means something quite different than deadly sins. For deadly, deadly designates mortal sin, which is a category of moral theology that was invented much later. 
And the reference to, to sins can sometimes be misleading, especially for um, a contemporary Protestant audience, because we usually think of sin as referring to an individual action, and this was not what the Desert Fathers had in mind. To answer the question, what did they mean by capital vices, I need to break the answer down into two parts, the capital part and the vice part. So what's a capital vice? The word capital in Latin means head or source. So not capital punishment, we're gonna cut off your head, but rather fountainhead or first principle of things. They were originally called principia vitia or principal vices by Cassian because they were sources or first principles from which lots of other sins arose. So the picture of sin here is a tree. Now let me give you a picture of that, the sort of source idea in Cassian. He uses the metaphor of a spring so if you poison the spring, it carries this, the poison out all the way down every tributary and into the land. Um, and also, um, it's like the root of a tree. Whatever comes in through the roots is the nourishment or the, or the poison that goes up to every single branch. So the picture, one of the pictures that Cassian gives us here is this tree metaphor again. Um, so the tree has roots, a trunk, branches, and then fruits. Pride is supposed to be the root or the trunk of the tree, sort of the main source of all the, um, the rest of the tree. And so it's um, the underlier for all the other branches. Each branch, that is to say each capital vice, is then a source of its own characteristic set of fruit. So here's a picture um, from the British Library's collection of illuminated manuscripts that shows you literally a tree of vices. And you can see each branch is drooping with fruit, which is sort of hanging low, um, dragging us down. The rootedness of each tree in pride is what keeps this tree steady and well-nourished. So here's another picture, another vice tree of the same idea. And you can see that what what grows up out of this tree is this, the, the old man, the sinful Adam, which is a picture of the sinful nature in general. So what we learn from the tree metaphor is that you can't leave sin at the root of your life. It's not just going to sit there benignly, safely, out of sight underground, if only. Sin is rather organic. It grows, it branches out, it bears fruit. And also, that means you can't just pick off a few fruit now and then, trim a few twigs off the tree, because a well-rooted tree is, of course, going to keep growing more and producing more fruit. Pride, the root of the capital vices, is the source of all the others. The prideful person claims that God is not his ultimate good and that he does not need God to provide for him. So... Let's get a picture of how this works sort of in the capital vice tradition. So if you're rooted in pride and your word to God is, I don't need you, you're not my ultimate good, I don't need your provision, I'm going to do this my own way. Let's, let's follow our prideful person for a moment. If you've rejected God as your ultimate good, what sort of good should you choose instead? Well, it looks like there's lots of choices. In other words, lots of created things can be substitutes. You could choose pleasure, you could choose security, or comfort, or control, or wealth, or status, or beauty, or food, or sex, or approval, or honor. And we'll talk about one of those tomorrow in chapel when we talk about vainglory. These created goods are, in fact, good. Yes, they are good. 
but they're not as good as God. And that will be the dynamic that leads to our downfall. So this prideful person will take some good created thing, let's, let's just say wealth, and decide to try to find happiness in that thing. Now, how does money work as a God substitute? I mean, pretty well, you might think, if you have enough money, you can provide whatever you might need for yourself. Money is something you seem to be able to get on your own without needing God. I mean, you're supposed to work diligently and network well and invest shrewdly, and these things are supposed to pay off for you, right? Um, but the trouble with making money the center of your life instead of God is the pursuit of any good thing can become a pattern. It can become a lifestyle. It's not an occasional, once-in-a-while um, sin that you can sort of slap a Band-Aid on and expect to heal up in a day or two. Um, it's rather a habit. It's something that shapes you. And in the tradition's word, um, this is called a vice. So a vice is habitual sin. It's sin when it becomes an undercurrent in your character, a pattern in your life. It becomes a lifestyle. And our habits say a lot about who we are. They form our character. As Calvin and Hobbes note, however, um, there's a problem with money. The more you have, the more you want, and more, and more, and more. Your desire for money escalates, and with it, your attachment and your devotion to pursuing it. Little by little, you become ruled by this thing you've invested in, that you've wrapped your life around. Little by little, you've become more callous to human need, more willing to cut a few corners ethically to make sure you turn a profit, you become a little more discontented with what you already have. You become even a little more willing to harm others to keep your possessions and your lifestyle secure. So as greed settles into your character, it bears fruit, fruits of character that these vice trees, in fact, document. Fruit like hard-heartedness, deceit, restlessness. The greedy person is therefore not a person who occasionally overvalues money or keeps too much for himself, but someone who is a greedy person. His thoughts are colored by greed, his conversation revolves around his earnings and his possessions and his concern for them, his feelings and desires are formed by what greed values, his commitments and priorities and time are shaped by a love for money. Now, maybe you uh, wouldn't make greed your pick. Maybe you would pick a different created good um, and place your hopes for fulfillment in something else like security or comfort or the pleasure of eating or sexual gratification or status or getting recognition and approval from others. So there's a lot of different options here on the tree of vices, and that's the thing. Satan has a package of sinful habits specially designed for whatever your particular weakness might be. So whatever your favorite vice happens to be, the trouble, however, is going to be the same. Habitual pursuit of any created thing in God's place is going to lead to unhappiness, self-destruction, enslavement, or as Augustine puts it, restlessness. What starts as apparently fulfilling turns empty. Sometimes we don't even realize what we're doing or where we've ended up until it feels like it's too late. Frederick Buechner once said that we're half in love with our own destruction. 
It's quite a telling description of the human race. Sometimes we're so caught up in these patterns, in other words, that we can't even see how far we've gone and how much we've changed. Which is just to say that sin is an awfully hard habit to break. And if it were up to us, we would all end up broken. When we embark on a life of discipleship to Jesus Christ, these sinful habits are what we need to die to. We need to bring our broken selves to the foot of the cross in confession and repentance. In other words, we need to ask God to hack down that old tree, to cut off the branches and to throw them into the fire. But we claim Jesus' power not only in confessing our old habits and uprooting our old broken self, we also claim his power to become new. So you'll be happy to know there's also a virtue tree. To go back to the tree pictures, there's a tree of virtues here too. So when you tap into a new root system, you begin to grow into something new. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You see, the tree picture also works in the other direction, new growth and godliness. By rooting ourselves in God's great and gracious love, we begin to grow new branches. We begin to produce new fruit. These are new habits, building a new lifestyle, and through them we become someone who is more and more Christ-like in our character. So this is what practicing the spiritual disciplines is all about. Like baptism, the Christian life is a rhythm of kind of dying to the old self and rising to the new. It's a rhythm of repentance and regeneration. The disciplines are practices of resistance against those old habits that we're trying to repent of and die to, and it's a strategic living into these new habits which constitute new life in Christ. So to return to the tree metaphor, the goal is not just to kill off the weeds of vice, but also to cultivate a garden of Christ-like virtues. So here's a few examples, Sabbath keeping. It may be a a way of pushing back against or resisting our bad habits of being too confident in our own efforts or too controlling um, about our own work or too invested in our own productivity. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you as a uh, college student, right? Productivity and diligence, always valued among the students. But living into this new pattern may also give us the rest and the kind of refreshment we need to do the work that God is calling us to do better and more faithfully. It may provide a moment in which we actually hold still long enough to hear what God is calling us to. Sabbath keeping is a practice of repentance and resistance, but through it, the Spirit at the same time is also cultivating a new way of life in us. So there's the rhythm. When we develop this new habit, our work can become a form of worship. It can renew and enrich our vision of what God is up to in our time and the way in which he's calling us to be a part of that. In the same way, a practice like stillness, which can be a combination of silence and solitude, it may mean practicing this sort of uh, new habit may mean we have to curb the constant noisiness, music, and chatter that are really convenient filler for the real emptiness at the center of our lives. It may mean we have to stop clinging to things like sexual relationships as a kind of magic bullet that will cure our loneliness or make us feel loved. We have to stop relying on these sham substitutes to give us relief from vulnerability and the complications of real 
and respectful intimacy. But if we learn to be still and if we learn to be alone in the presence of God, this may also be a chance to relearn how to breathe deeply, how to rediscover how full of God's presence and welcoming love that place of silence and stillness can be. When we still our own frantic desires, we may have a chance to learn what true love and true peace feel like. So a life of Christian discipleship is a, a garden teeming with such fruitful habits. It's nourished by these sorts of spiritual disciplines and many more, these daily practices of penitence and these patterns of renewal, um, which are meant for growth in godliness. So to return to the tree metaphor, if you're rooted in Christ, you can expect your character to be changed. If you sink your roots deep down into God's love and power, you can expect to grow. If you give the Holy Spirit a loud, grateful yes in your life, you might find yourself bearing a lot of new fruit. But I also want to sound a word of caution here. You should not only expect to grow, you should expect the unexpected. You see, these are graced disciplines, not valiant human efforts to be better. Um, spirit, spiritual disciplines like, for example, fasting are not a spiritual diet plan fueled by your willpower and some high-fiber, low-calorie snacks. Okay, This is not your program. This is the Holy Spirit's program. Instead, fasting is a way of saying to God, something as everyday as my eating is a part of life, a life of discipleship too. I want to be open to the ways in which you're going to form me here. And not just when I take communion on Sunday, but the ways in which my life of discipleship affects my eating in the dining halls, in a cafeteria, or at a family picnic, or wherever else. I want to be open to all the ways that you're going to form and transform my life and my character here. So this discipline is my way of saying to the Lord that my desires are damaged and deformed in ways that I probably don't even understand. Um, but I want you to transform them. I want to be open to that. And let me also just say a word of caution that the disciplines are just that. They're disciplines. They're daily practices. They're a practice of habit formation. They're doing the drill. So what I'm not promising is that it will be really exciting you might wonder what the big deal is and why all these apparently little things are supposed to be magically transformative. But as days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months, you may well find yourself turning too, turning into something new. You might find that it takes years of faithfulness in such practices before you get what's already happened to you and what's still happening in you. Please notice that I'm using the passive voice, and not just because I'm an academic. I'm using the passive voice on purpose. The spiritual disciplines often initially feel like something we're doing. Um, I'm fasting. I'm keeping Sabbath. I'm practicing silence. But this is really only how things look initially on the surface. Jesus says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain on the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So just a story about how that I've discovered this sort of through my own practice. Um, I decided to attempt 
uh, a kind of a modest Lenten fast one year and thought, okay, um, Lord, I'll, I'll give you this food thing and try to practice some abstinence and cut out some of luxury and, and just be more appreciative of what I'm eating um, and, and uh, cut back a little bit to devote myself to prayer. And what I discovered um, is that my whole schedule had revolved around eating, that the way I took breaks every day were always snack breaks or coffee breaks or candy bar breaks or after school breaks. And I didn't know how to rest and relax without food. So food was this, this sort of comfort prop that I hadn't realized had that place in my life. And I thought, okay, fair enough. You know, I've really learned something about fasting here. Great. And then, of course, Lent goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> um, so that was the, the first week or two lesson. And then, and then it sort of got old for me. And I thought, well, how many more days till Easter? And um, as I went along, what I discovered is that because I was eating less, I was tireder. I didn't have my sugar and caffeine perk me up um, in the middle of the morning, in the middle of the afternoon. And um, so I got tireder, which meant I got crabby, kind of irritable. Um, and discovered that without the food props that I didn't have as much energy as I used to have, which meant that I had to cut back on the amount of things I was trying to do in a day. Huh. Which meant I had to make some very hard decisions about how to prioritize my life from there on. It's like I had to cut out some things that I would have loved to have crammed in and had to sort of think about what was most important and most central and what was needful in that day. Um, and, and that got to be kind of a frustrating process for me. I really chafed against that. And so what I realized had happened here is what the Holy Spirit is always doing, um, sort of you, you open your hands and say, okay, Lord, come in and, and do some work in me. And, and you can have the food thing. I'm giving you the food thing. And the Holy Spirit said, yeah, the food thing's interesting, but I really want to get into this, like, time control issue, priorities of life thing. Like, now, I, didn't, I did not give you that, Lord. I did not give you that part. I gave you the food thing, the safe part, the part I had planned and carefully scripted. And, and yet, here comes the Holy Spirit to do this transforming work. So that's just a fair warning that if you invest yourself in trying some new spiritual disciplines, you may end up with the unexpected. You may end up with graced transformation in places of your life you didn't know you needed to turn over. And so that process of, of transformation is also sometimes a process of discovery that turns a little uncomfortable. Um, but again, this is Christ, the physician of souls, doing some heart surgery in order to give you healing. So Jesus says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain on the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So be attuned to uh, the way that you are staying rooted in Christ and attentive to his spirit. So the tree of virtues and vices, that whole dynamic, prompts us to take a look at the roots and fruits of our own life and our own character. Where are you rooted? What direction are you growing? What fruit are you bearing? The tree metaphor, like the passage in John's Gospel that we began with, encourages us to sink our roots deep into God's love and to watch ourselves grow in Christ-like character. Jesus gives us a command with a promise. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So remain in me as I remain in you. Bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. 
Would you pray with me? Lord God, almighty and everlasting Father, we praise you for making all things new and for making us new. Thank you for faithfully leading us into new life by your good and gracious hand. In your grace and mercy, and for Jesus' sake, be our God, hear our prayer, and make us fully your own. Amen. You may go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you.